This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word because it is in your word that we come to understand reality, we come to understand truth. We come to understand who you are and who we are in the light of your word. And as we studied last time, the light, Jesus Christ is the life and uh, he is the light of the world. That life illuminates us as to who you are. As we continue our study in Matthew and in relation to the life of Christ, as we come to understand who he is and come to understand his character and that we are to emulate him, and that you are working in us to conform us to his image. May we be challenged in relation to the role of our own will, our own volition, that we respond as the disciples did to that challenge to follow him and to be a genuine, true disciple of the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray for us this morning as we study your word that we might be able to focus and concentrate clearly upon your word and that God the Holy Spirit would take what we study, what we learn, and drive it home deep into our hearts that we might come to understand how these things apply to us and be responsive to the challenge. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew, as we see from our title slide, is the book of presenting Christ as the Messianic King. And as the Messianic King, he came to offer himself, to offer himself to Israel. It is that offer of himself to Israel that is the offer of the kingdom. This is why we have the message in uh, Matthew, the message of John the Baptist, the messages we'll see of Jesus' Uh, also, and his disciples to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was near. It was near because the king was present. That's the sense in which the kingdom was near, and Jesus was presenting it, presenting himself to the Jewish people. Now, this morning we sang a great hymn, a great Christmas hymn, and we unfortunately we only sing it at the end, end of each year around Christmas, and that is Joy to the World. I want to say a couple of things about it as we sang it. Joy to the World was one of many hundreds of hymns that were penned by Isaac Watts. If you think about, to, if you think too literally, let's say, and we always, I always want to sort of, uh, couch this in the right terms, we, in literal interpretation, we also recognize that in realms, areas of poetry, there's a broader use of language. It's not that it denies the literal sense, but there are aspects to poetry that we see in the Psalms, that we see in other wisdom literature in the Old Testament that goes beyond just the literal words have a little bit more of a figurative sense. And often a writer in the Psalms puts himself in a future position. He's not talking about necessarily about present realities, but future realities. This is part of, of, uh, of good literature. That's what Isaac Watts does in this hymn. If you read the second, third, and fourth verses, 
it's easy to take this as, well, is he a little bit amillennial here? Is he, is he talking about Jesus ruling and reigning from heaven now, and somehow there's a present kingdom? And if you study the life and the theology of Isaac Watts, he was a premillennialist. He had an early form of dispensationalist. We often talk about dispensationalism, which we believe in, which understands that God uh, administers human history in different ways in different uh, historical periods. And and this didn't really get, get fully systematized and organized until the early uh, 1800s by a British clergyman by the name and lawyer by the name of John Nelson Darby. But what's been discovered in recent years is that many of the ideas that are present in dispensationalism, the distinction between Israel and the church, a futuristic in, interpretation of much of prophecy, and even a pre-tribulation rapture, were present in Puritan theology. They were present in British theology, British conservative evangelical theology, as early as uh, the early parts of the 1600s. Uh, it's at the end of the 1600s and early 1800s that Isaac Watts lived. So he is very much like us in his theological perspective. When he pens this, he's writing it, if you think about the first verse, he's writing it in terms of the first advent, the first coming of Christ as the king. But, of course, we know that his offer of himself as king was rejected. The next three verses reflect upon how the Messiah uh, will rule when he is ruling in his kingdom. And so there is a certain uh, proleptic sense. That may be a new word for some of you. Uh, proleptic has, is, is writing something in terms of its future fulfillment, uh, a sort of a futuristic sense to it. And so uh, the second and third and fourth verses talk about what it will be like when the Messiah, when the king reigns. The second verse begins, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Uh, he's not reigning today. He will reign when he comes and establishes his kingdom, but he's not reigning today. Uh, Isaac Watts didn't believe he was reigning today. He's writing that in light of what it will be like in the future. So I just wanted to comment on that so that helps you when we sing these songs to think in terms of how the writers write. We sing other songs that do the same. Crown him with many crowns. We're not calling upon God to crown Jesus with many crowns right now. That crowning of Jesus only comes uh, just before his return to the earth. Uh, we do the same thing with the, the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. It also talks about crowning him. But it's not talking about doing that today in the church age. It is looking forward to that time when he will be crowned and then return to the earth to establish his kingdom. I say this because I've had a couple of people. In fact, one of the uh, there was someone who was involved with the uh, uh, very foundation of this church at the very beginning, and we were singing "All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name," and he got all upset and said, "We're trying to crown Jesus today, and that song has no place in the church." Some people are too literalistic. That's a false use of literal interpretation, not understanding its significance. So I try to point these out to help you just a little bit. Let's go to. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This is a little bit of a, uh, of a transition going on here in Matthew, as I pointed out last time, that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and immediately following that, God the Holy Spirit uh, propels him, impels him, moves him, a very strong form of direction, into the wilderness, the desert area Probably, traditionally, it's stated to be the area west of Jericho, which is very likely. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasts, and that is followed by three temptations or tests from Satan. Following that, and we don't see this in Matthew, we only see this by putting together the events described in the first four chapters of the Gospel of John, but following that, uh, those days of temptation, Jesus came back to the Jordan River where John was baptizing. 
And we read about this and studied this uh, two weeks ago. And it was there that he first picked up some disciples. They were formerly disciples of John the Baptist. But when Jesus returned after his time in the wilderness, John is out one day walking with his disciples. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And they began to follow him. And we have Peter and Andrew, James and John and uh, Nathaniel introduced, those five in John chapter 1. Well, that is approximately a year prior to the events that we uh, study here in Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 12, we read, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Now, if we compare this with the descriptions of Jesus' early ministry in the Gospel of John, John and his, his disciples and Jesus and his disciples are both baptizing in Judea in the beginning of John chapter 4. So the events of John 1, the calling of those five, the, the, initial, the initial calling, uh, an introduction to those five disciples, the wedding at Cain of Galilee, which means Jesus went from uh, this, this area uh, roughly down here. He went back up to Cana, which is located just to the uh, west of Nazareth. He went back up to Cana. And then what happens? Then he goes in John chapter 3, he's in Jerusalem, and he comes south to Jerusalem, and he's talking to Nicodemus. And then uh, he he's, uh, goes back to the north. After a year, he seems to be in Jerusalem for approximately a, a, a year. And then he then this is when um, this is when John the Baptist is arrested. And so Jesus heads back north, and he goes through Samaria here, and I think in, in, in Shechem here, which is where you had uh, Jacob's well, where he meets the woman at the well. This is John chapter 4. And he has unnamed, he just has a group of disciples with him. We're not told who they were. Uh, it's loose at this point as we put things together because he doesn't really start calling the twelve until about a year later. Now, that doesn't mean they're not with him, but there, it emphasizes that there are sort of, of gradations of commitment uh, for these disciples. They're, he doesn't approach them, which is what a lot of people think, right off the bat and ask them for a 100% total commitment. There's a gradual uh, inclusion of them in his ministry until we get to the events we'll look at this morning. And then he headed, from there he goes back up north to Nazareth. This was what we read two weeks ago in Luke 4, where he read from Isaiah 61.1 and the first part of verse 2, and the people rejected him. And so he leaves Nazareth and he moves to Capernaum, uh, Capernaum. And this is where he takes up uh, <clears throat> takes up residence in Capernaum, where Peter takes up residence, and uh, James and John. And it is in this area of, of, of Galilee, around the uh, Sea of Galilee, Lake, also known as Lake Gennesaret, which is a proper terminology. Uh, I pointed out that the Greek sometimes refers to it as the Sea of Galilee, Thalasso, while Thalasso, which is translated sea, can also mean lake. Uh, in the passage I read this morning in Luke 5, the Greek refers to it as, in a more technical term, using the term lake of Gennesaret. So that's, that's the uh, <coughs> uh, proper name there. All right, so what we see in Matthew <coughs> following the temptation is a series of what I would call snapshots, little pictures of what's going on between the temptation and the Sermon on the Mount. This is not necessarily organized chronologically. Matthew approaches this more topically. So last time we looked at the first snapshot, which presented, uh, the first snapshot presents uh, Jesus moving. He moves from Nazareth to Capernaum. The second snapshot 
looks at him as light in the darkness. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, again, uh, quoting from Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 2, that he, the Messiah would come and he would be a light, a great light to, to Galilee of the Gentiles. So we're a large Gentile population here. And what we're going to see in this section of, of, uh, of Matthew is a foreshadowing of Jesus' eventual inclusion of the Gentiles. He's offering the kingdom only to the house of Israel and the house of Judah at this point. But there's these elements here where he is, um, he's, he indicates a future involvement of the Gentiles. And so this is foreshadowed here that he goes to the Galilee of the Gentiles and the people see a great light. And last time we looked at what the Bible teaches about light and about Jesus as the light of the world. This morning we come to the third, uh, third picture, just a very quick snapshot. And this emphasizes the messianic message of Jesus, the messianic message of Jesus that following the arrest of John the Baptist, Jesus picks up the message of his forerunner. Uh, verse uh, 17, from that time, that is the time of John's arrest, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what's important here in looking at this, this, this structure that we have, and those of you who've been coming to the Bible study methods class, which we started up again last week, but apparently some people didn't realize that, so I want to make sure you realize we're continuing tonight, is to look at some of these key words and that, that show up in verses, that show up again and again in, in, uh, particular books or epistles. And what we see here is a picture of Jesus doing three things. He's preaching, he's teaching um, the people. There's a proclamation of the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preaching and he's teaching, as we see. Uh, that will come in in verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sicknesses. This is part of what he is doing to make disciples. This passage really does focus on, at, at, at the center of it, is his call of the disciples and how Jesus is training them. The way this fits together in Matthew is is remarkable because as he calls the disciples here, there's an emphasis on his calling of the disciples and his teaching them then in chapters 5 through 7, he's going to be explaining to them what the character qualities of a disciple should be. That's when we get into one of the most difficult interpretive sections of Scripture, uh, which is the, called the Sermon on the Mount. But here we just see that Jesus is plugged into the message of proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. From that time, Jesus began to preach. The word translated preach is the word keruso. It's not like what we think of sometimes as preaching. This morning, I was uh, flipping around on the TV a little bit and saw a couple of local pastors who were preaching. In English, preaching is a particular rhetorical or oratorical style. It's often taught in homiletics classes. You start off with an opening illustration. You focus on maybe one primary point for the whole message, and then you uh, support that by two or three points, and then you wrap up with a nice little story and challenge and move on down the road. Uh, often in some denominations, this form takes a, a particularly high rhetorical style, uh, but that is not what the Bible refers to as preaching. In the Bible, Caruso is the announcement of something, simply the proclamation of an event, telling people that something is about to happen. It is not tied to a certain format. It is, it is just simply announcing something. Often uh, a herald called a kerux in the Greek, 
the herald of the king. Remember, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have email, and all, and they didn't have the local news media on TV and all the other things that we have today to communicate things. And if the government wanted to communicate something to people, they would send out the herald, the the Karux, and he would go from town to town and village to village, and he, there would be the blast of a horn or a trumpet or something to get people's attention, and then he would make the announcement. And then he would move on down the road to the next village and make the announcement there. And there wasn't a time for debate. There wasn't uh, opportunity for question and answer. Uh, this was just simply the king sending out his messenger to make this announcement. And so that's what preaching is. It, it focuses mostly on making an announcement. And in many cases, the content of the preaching, the Caruso, was simply the gospel. And here it's the gospel of the kingdom, and the message is simply repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the word repent also is one of those abused words today. Even in English, the word repent is often translated in the sense of remorse or feeling sorry for something. You work in other languages, and for example, I'm familiar with working within either Russian or Ukrainian because of my uh, work with Jim Meyer's ministry and going over there. You look at the Russian Bible, and the word that's translated uh, repent is translated uh, to be remorseful. Uh, that's not the idea of the Greek word. It is to turn. And it really, in the New Testament, you always have to go back to your Old Testament context. And most of you know this. I've covered it many, many times. That this really goes back to the idea present in Deuteronomy chapter 30. After Moses had identified the fact that there would be various blessings that God would bring to Israel, but that Israel would reject him. And if this would lead to a divine discipline on the nation when they would be scattered and dispersed throughout all the nations of the earth. And then he promises in the first couple of verses of Deuteronomy chapter 30 that there will come a time when you will turn back to me. The Hebrew word is shuv, and it has that idea of conversion. Uh, uh, teshuvah is often used by the rabbis to talk about this concept of turning to God and conversion, and it's, it's simply turning back to God from disobedience to obedience, and God says, when you turn back to me, then I will restore you to the land from all the nations from which I have scattered you. That's the focal point here. We have to contextualize this message in the message of the, of the Old Testament. The king is coming saying, I will fulfill the promises, the prophecies of the Old Testament to restore the kingdom to Israel, but first you have to turn back to God. And that is what he's announcing, turning back to God. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. The word there in Gizo has that idea of near or it's approaching, and it's present in the form of the king. He is offering not the kingdom, but he is offering himself as the king. If they accept him, then the kingdom will come. So that's our third snapshot. Just a brief statement. This is Jesus' message at the first part of his ministry. As we studied before, remember, there's three components to Jesus' ministry on the earth. The first is his initial uh, message uh, that the kingdom of heaven is near. Then at the center, there's a crisis point that he reaches with the, with the religious leaders where they reject him, accuse him of performing his miracles in the power of Satan. And then there's a period at, near the end when he is specifically focused on teaching and training his disciples for what will come afterwards because uh, Israel will be going out under divine discipline and there will be a new entity called the church that will come into existence following uh, his ascension to heaven. And so he is an, at this point announcing the proximity, the possibility, the contingency of the kingdom, but it's dependent upon their response to the message. Then we shift to the fourth snapshot in this section, which is a snapshot related to his calling of the disciples. As I pointed out in the introduction, in John chapter 1, he had already met these disciples. There we read of his uh, initial contacts with Andrew, John, uh, uh, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Those were the initial contacts. Here he's addressing uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, those four. And he calls them. We read here that Jesus 
uh, walking by the Sea of Galilee. Now, J- J- Matthew is giving us a very general snapshot of the event. The parallel to this, as I read this morning in Luke chapter 5, says that he's doing more than just walking by the Sea of Galilee. He is te- he comes there and he teaches the people. But Matthew's not focusing on on the details. He just says, as he comes to the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, that's not a contradiction to Luke 5. It's simply a broad generalization without getting into all of the details of the context. Only Luke gives us that. <clears throat> and, and Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Mark says almost the identical uh, thing, and Luke then gives us more of the context. The result was that they immediately left their nets and followed him. Now, often the way this is taught uh, and, and viewed by many people is that Jesus has no contextual relationship at all with uh, <clears throat> Peter and Andrew, James and John. He just uh, is out walking by the Sea of Galilee and sees them, This is the first time he sees them, and he says, leave everything behind and come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they just dropped it all and followed him. But that's not what was going on. That's not what Matthew's trying to communicate. Matthew is setting up a couple of things for us. First of all, his emphasis in the gospel of Matthew is going to be on this concept of discipleship. This is at the very beginning of the way Matthew describes Jesus' public ministry. And he starts not with the year down in Judea, but he starts with the call of these disciples because Matthew is going to focus on discipleship as as a fundamental theme in his gospel. So he begins with the call of these four disciples, and then when we come to the end of Matthew, the last thing that Jesus is going to say to his disciples is what is known as the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, when Jesus, what we do when we read Matthew, we see that sandwiched between Matthew 4 and Matthew 28 are five great discourses or teaching events in the life of Jesus. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 10, we have his instructions to the disciples. Uh, we have three other major uh, major. Uh, sermons, major discourses that come as you progress your way through the book. And so the focal point of Matthew is on how Jesus made disciples. How did Jesus make disciples? He made disciples by teaching them. He made disciples by instructing them. Uh, The focal point of ministry, therefore, is not on fellowship. It's not on encouragement or motivation. It is on uh, instruction. It's on teaching. It's on giving information, but not just as information, but information that is to challenge and change people from the inside out. That's what Jesus is going to uh, emphasize here. And so we need to understand a couple of things about the doctrine of discipleship. Uh, <clears throat> before we leave Matthew 28, 19, and 20 that I have up there, I want you to notice a couple of things here. First of all, the way it's usually translated in English, and I've wrestled with the Greek on this for many years, and there is debate over this, but it's translated usually with, with as a command, go, it's the Greek verb peruomai, and it's in a participial form. And many times people will want to translate this as a temporal participle, when you are going, and then make the application that what Jesus is saying is, as you go through your life, you are to make disciples. Now, that's true. I don't think that's the proper way to, uh, in, although I've taught that in the past, I don't think that's the proper way to interpret that participle. Uh, uh, point, of, point of grammar I've 
learned a number of years ago is that when you have a participle preceding an imperative, that the mood of the participle often picks up the mood of the main verb. That is why in many English translations, the participle is translated as if it's a command, because the command is to make disciples. And it, the, the, so that initial participle to go really absorbs the mood from the, from the uh, uh, command there to make disciples. Now, the concept of making disciples is also kind of a tricky translation. The, the word there, and we'll get into this in just a minute, for making disciples, the verb there also means to teach. Disciple and discipleship have become really significant buzzwords in modern evangelicalism. And, and, and whenever biblical words start to be used and overused, they often lose their significance and their meaning. Coming out of World War II, there was a, a, a number of campus ministry organizations that developed uh, trying to reach out to evangelize college kids and to teach them, train them, prepare them for a life of service as mature Christians. One of those groups emphasized this idea of discipleship, one-on-one type of training. They often used a very well-known book called The Training of the Twelve by a British theologian named A.B. Bruce that, that tried to narrow the concept of discipleship down to this sort of small group type of ministry. However, that's not what we see in the scriptures. That's taking one format, the format of Jesus training his 12 as the model for all training. But that's not the model that's followed in the book of Acts. Sure, the apostle Paul had three or four uh, pastors who traveled around with him and his entourage, young men that he trained But as he established churches and taught in churches, it was the ministry of a pastor to a congregation that varied in in many different ways and different sizes. It wasn't a small group ministry. If you go to seminary today or you read much about how the modern church should express itself, there's this emphasis on small groups. The sad part about that is small groups are led by whom? They're led by uh, lay leadership, that is, non-professionals. In probably the vast majority of cases, they're not led by men who have any any kind of formal uh, training in terms of Bible study. I've been involved in a number of these. It's not too different from what happens in a lot of Sunday school classes. That's another form of small group. And, and sadly, we've shifted in modern, our modern view of the church to a pastor who's more of a CEO and a facilitator. And the real work of teaching and instruction in the local church comes from, uh, untrained lay leadership. And often it just, it deteriorates to the point of people sitting around a group and everybody sharing whatever the passage means to them. And nobody has ever taken any time to do the in-depth work and research into the Scripture. And the result has produced a very shallow and superficial form of Christianity in America today. What we need and what we desperately need is a, a, a biblically sound view of this whole concept of discipleship and training. And so I want to just cover this very, um, uh, very briefly. Jesus calls these four disciples, James and John, uh, uh, Peter and Andrew, and he, but there's levels of commitment that are involved. They've already been with him for a year. They were introduced to him a year earlier. Uh, some of them were with him in Judea. They left their job. They went down to Judea. They went with, they were with him in Samaria, uh, and they had, were with him at Cana of Galilee for the first miracle. And now Jesus is going to ramp up that level of commitment. The word disciple, whenever we start looking at a topic, we need to uh, properly define terms. The word disciple, the noun, is that first word on the screen, mathetes. And it's used 245 times in the New Testament. But the thing you should notice, it's only used in the Gospels and in Acts. The noun is never used in the epistles. Now, that doesn't mean that discipleship is not important because the concept is there. 
the verb mathetuo, uh, which means to make a disciple or to teach, is used only four times. It's used one time in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 that we're to make disciples. It's used only two other times in Matthew, and it's used one time in Acts. In fact, uh, at least one of the other times in Matthew, it's, descri- it's translated as simply to instruct, to teach. And when we use a word like, 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 like discipleship, all of a sudden that sort of gets this sort of holy glow to it. Uh, this is something special. I think if we, we bring it back down to reality for us, if we try to translate it as just simply teaching or instructing others, it's not just like being in a college classroom. There's more to it than that, but it's fundamentally instruction. A church that is not teaching and instructing people at an in-depth level is completely failing in its responsibility. Uh, that's the, the focal point here. And then the, the um, another verb, montano, which is built off of mathetes, means to learn. That's the role of the individual believer. He is to be learning uh, the word of God so that he can grow. So first of all, we learn that the word disciple really means a learner, a pupil, a student, Someone is focusing on learning and acquiring new information. In the first century, during the Second Temple period, it was typical with the rabbis that they would accumulate certain students, and each rabbi would have certain students who followed him around and would learn from him, learn Torah, and would grow in their knowledge of what the tradition of the fathers was, and that would be what the rabbis taught and so they focused not so much on learning the original Torah as much as how it was interpreted by the rabbis. This is why there will be a big contrast with the way Jesus taught, is that he didn't teach by saying, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, but then Rabbi so-and-so said that, and I say this. Uh, Jesus just expounded upon the scriptures and explained what he taught, and so uh, he had a distinct style that was identified by the peoples, and this is why they said no one t- ever taught like this before. Uh, and we, we've run into this sort of modern type of rabbinical approach today. I've heard so many people will talk about, well, this preacher says that, that preacher says this, this other preacher says that, go, go home, be warm, and be filled. They never reach conclusions because in seminary, as opposed to a couple of generations ago, they're not really taught to get into the text as much. Scholarship today is defined as knowing what everybody said about the passage. It's not defined in terms of your ability to study the text in and of itself. In fact, I I actually heard one uh, seminary professor, not a whole lot younger than myself, make the comment that people like Charles Ryrie, Louis Berry Chafer, Dwight Pentecost uh, were not scholars. Why weren't they scholars? Because the definition of scholarship has changed. These were men who just worked with the text. They weren't men who knew every opinion by everybody who claimed to be a a Bible student. They were men who just studied the Word. That's what a real scholar is, though, but but the definition has been uh, turned around today. So the first point is that the word disciple is a broad word. It simply means a learner or a pupil. It can refer to different stages or grades of involvement. It can refer to the one who is just simply or casually curious about what Jesus is teaching to the one who is in the inner circle who is fully and totally committed to learning everything Jesus has to say and emulating his life. And all of us go through that. We go through those stages. The challenge is to be among those who wish to be uh, fully committed learners of Jesus to implement everything into our life. But we don't start off that way. We start off just being interested learners, students of the Word, and then as we learn it more and more and respond to it, then we're drawn in and <clears throat> respond to the greater uh, to the greater challenge. Second point about discipleship is that uh, being a Christian is different from being a disciple. Being a Christian is based on faith alone. It is accepting a free gift. It is does not involve works, as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says. It is simply um, accepting a free gift. 
But for a disciple, there is a cost. This is seen in Matthew 8.34. So being saved, being a Christian is a free gift, but being a disciple is the response to a, to a cost. In Mark 8.34 we read, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, which is a response to the command to follow me, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever, uh, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, that's works. You're, you're to uh, deny yourself. You're to take up your cross, whatever that means. And you're to follow Jesus. You're to, to desire to lose your life for Christ's sake. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about the cost of following Jesus and being a full disciple of Christ. What it means to take up your cross, uh, we'll see this when we get there, but it's a figure of speech that comes out of the Roman uh, custom of where the convicted criminal would have to carry the crossbeam of the cross over his shoulder to the place of execution. It was the visual, visual image that the empire has finally forced this individual to submit to their authority. And so it became an, an image that emphasized the fact that, that, uh, crossbearing meant submission to authority or submission to the one who was ruling them. And so when Jesus says, whoever desires to come after me, they have to deny themselves and accept the authority, accept my authority over every area of their life and follow me. That's not what's required to get to heaven, but that's what's required if you're going to be a full bore, um, a full bore disciple or student of Christ. Other things are mentioned uh, <clears throat> indicating the requirement to be a disciple. Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. See, there's there, there's something. That's not just a free gift. This isn't talking about salvation. This is talking about something that comes beyond salvation. Luke 14, 33 said, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So this is part of that that fourth snapshot that we see the call of these uh, disciples, that there's a cost to being a disciple. And then we see the next snapshot, which is the fifth snapshot, that Jesus demonstrates his Messiahship through his ministry and miracles. So he's demonstrating that he is who he claimed to be, and this is what we're uh, Matthew begins to set the stage for what will come in chapters 5 through 7. Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching or proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. The, the verb there that he went about is a verb meaning to go around, which means he's traveling all around the small towns and villages in Galilee, and in each place he would go visit the synagogue, he would read from the scriptures, he would proclaim uh, the message that the kingdom of God was at hand, and he would give instruction from the Old Testament. These are the top two are the key words that we see also throughout the book of Acts. This is how Jesus made disciples. Remember I said that word, mathetuo, the verb means to teach or to instruct. And that gives us a better sense of what is a disciple. A disciple isn't somebody who's in a small group. A disciple is somebody who is learning the word and being taught the word. So Jesus goes about, he's teaching in their synagogues, he's giving instruction on what the Torah means. Second, he's preaching or proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as a sign that he is the Messiah, he is healing all manner of sickness and disease, including uh, casting out demons. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, we read, 
of the Messiah, that then when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. In other words, as Jesus goes about giving sight to the blind and healing those who are mute so that they can speak, uh, healing the lepers and giving full recovery to those who are lame, uh, it is a sign that he is the Messiah. These are unique to the ministry of the Messiah, and so his words are backed up by his works that he is the Messiah. As a result of that, we see in verses 24 and 25 that his fame goes throughout <coughs> Judea and Samaria. Oh, wait a minute, that's not what it says. Isn't that interesting? His fame went throughout all Syria. Where's Syria? Syria is up to the north. Who lives in Syria? Gentiles. Now, there are a lot of Gentiles who live in Galilee, but, but Matthew is emphasizing here that not just that his fame goes throughout Israel, Judea and Samaria, but it goes to, to the Gentile neighboring nations, to Syria. Again, this, this foreshadowing that the message is ultimately going to go not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. His fame went throughout all of Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed. Demon possession means that a demon takes up internal residence within the body of a person. No no Christian can be demon-possessed. We've studied this in the past because their body has become an inner sanctum, a naos, an inner sanctum temple for God the Holy Spirit, and nothing evil can enter into the inner sanctum, the naos temple. So uh, they brought to him the demon-possessed epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Again, this is signs of his... uh, Messiahship. And the result, verse 25, great multitudes followed him. Great multitudes followed him. What was the message he gave to, to the initial disciples? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So they, they began to follow him. That term fishers of men emphasizes evangelism as part of making disciples. This is Matthew 28, 19. Uh, make disciples or teach all nations. In fact, at that translation of Matthew 28, 19, in English, it's translated, make disciples of all nations. Well, that word of uh, indicates a, a genitive case, possession, but there's no genitive case in that in the Greek of Matthew 28, 19. You just have an accusative case, make disciples all nations. Well, if you translate it, make disciples, it doesn't work to leave the the accusative case as a, as a direct object. You have to change it. So it should be translated... Uh, teach all nations. That's how Matthew 28, 19, and 20 should go, to teach all nations. So Jesus is showing how that is done. The initial disciples follow him. They respond to the command to be fishers of men, which is what's emphasized in the Great Commission as baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism doesn't save you, but in the early church, it, there wasn't a separation in time between trusting in Christ. If you trust in Christ, you were automatically uh, understood to get baptized. You didn't put it off. You didn't think it was optional. It was, it was understood. That's what you did in order to demonstrate and to reinforce and teach the whole principle related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what literal water baptism signifies, and to teach the fact that the power of the sin nature has now been broken. Uh, so there wasn't this disconnect between justification and some years later getting, uh, getting baptized. So what we see here is this initial response of the multitudes, and they're following him. But as we'll see in John 6, many of them, as Jesus made the demands of discipleship more and more evident, they fell away. They were believers, but they only went as far as being sort of curious. They weren't committed when it came right down to it. Like many people we find who just sort of give a nod to God at Christmas and Easter, show up at church occasionally, they're just sort of the the curious, they just want to have a little bit of a veneer of Christianity, but they're not deeply, profoundly uh, committed to letting Christ uh, 
teach them to emulate Christ and to let God conform them to the image of Christ. That's the challenge of being a disciple. That's the question that each of us needs to answer in our own lives. Are we just going to be those who are on the fringe, or do we want to be those who are uh, taking up the challenge of Christ to be close to him, to have intimate fellowship with him, and to walk with him closely so that God can really perfect in us the image of Christ so that we can be all that God intends for us to be with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word again this morning, to be again impressed with what Jesus is teaching and what he is challenging uh, in relation to his disciples. Father, we pray that we would not be like those who are just the uh, casually curious, but that we would want to be uh, committed, profoundly committed to the being followers of Jesus, letting our lives be transformed from the inside out, letting you work on us to conform us to the image of your Son. We're reminded as we study today that salvation is a free gift. It's simply something we accept. We don't work for it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make this issue very, very clear to them. Jesus is offering you a free gift, just as he offered it to the woman at the well, and that all that is necessary is for you to accept it, which simply means to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. At the instant that you believe, you are forgiven of all sin. You're justified. You're given a new life in Christ, which can never be taken from you. You have eternal life. The next challenge is, are you willing to take up the challenge to follow him, to be a committed disciple, to push forward in your Christian life, not just to be satisfied with where you are, but constantly pushing to a greater level of personal commitment to the cause of Christ and to the work of God in your life, transforming you into the image of his son. Father, we pray that we might be responsive to this challenge and that as a church, as a congregation, we might not shirk in our responsibility, but we might press on to the high calling of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.